This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by three amazing people. Super Inframan, Allison Cook, and 36 Dingo. If you want to become a patron or a sponsor, go to wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight, I have with me, well, let's see, uh, Christopher Ernst. Hello. Octavian. Greetings. And Taylor. Salutations. So, I think we've had this combination before, right? You've, you've all been on shows with each other, right? I believe yeah. so, yeah. I think so. Maybe not all at the same time. Tangentially. No, I actually think so. And so, it was on the last reading of this book. Huh? I think the last time we did this kind of thing, it was all of us, and then Tim was on it as well. Oh, yeah. oh that's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Look, someone who can remember things. That's pretty impressive. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, we're going we're gonna to dig through some more of the Mysteries of the Unexplained book, which is a Reader's Digest book that came out in 1982. And uh, a lot of people uh, who were into this stuff in the 80s probably owned this book. And uh, yeah. I loved this book as a kid because it just had, it was such a plethora of different stuff. And it wasn't like just going about debunking everything. It was just like, oh, this stuff was reported and this stuff was reported. And that's that, you know? And uh, yeah, really loved it at the time. And reading through it now, it's still pretty cool. Yeah, it is. So we're going to look at the anomalies section of the book. Because I don't think we've done anything from the anomalies section. And uh, a lot of this is footprints. So, and some of this may have, you know, I mean, being 82, some of this may have changed. You know, we might have more information or something like that. Um, so. Yeah, should, should we get one of us on deck researching while we're doing it? <laughs> I mean, you can. Okay. Uh, like this says, a large stone bearing the perfect imprint of a human foot 14 and a half inches long was shown to members of the Ohio State Academy of Science in 1896. The stone had been taken from a hill four miles north of Parkinsburg, West Virginia, some 20 years earlier. And that came out, mm. out of the American Anthropologist in 1896. So 14 and a half inches long. That's it's not bad. Yeah, it's a pretty decent-sized foot. I don't know. <laughs> like, how, how does that I mean, line up with someone like Andre the Giant, though, you know? It's right. probably on par. I mean, I, my, my foot's probably about 11. I know a guy who had uh, feet that were probably 14 or 15. Yeah. He was so, a big dude. So that's big, Sha but. Yeah. Like Shaq's feet are 23 uh, uh, inches long. Yeah. We're not talking about like, yeah, exactly. Like, like two feet or, or something like that. Right. Yeah. 14 and a quarter, 14 and a half doesn't actually seem that big. Shaq's feet were 23 <laughs> inches long. Yeah. <laughs> Well, his shoes are, I'm sorry, oh, are nearly yeah. 23 inches long. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But still, you know, 23 that's, inches that's long. Close. Yeah. This, he's He's got to have, it's, looks like you're probably talking about 19 inches. Um, so let's see. A uh, carnival of horses, bears, turkeys, and six-toed humans left its tracks in what is now solid rock near the headwaters of the Tennessee River. 
a few miles south of Bracetown, North Carolina. According to Josiah Priest, a 19th century writer on antiquities, the strange human tracks included one of a giant, 16 inches long, 13 inches wide at the toes, and 5 inches wide at the ball of the heel. So that's actually more interesting to me, the idea that it's, it would be 13 inches wide. Yeah. Like some of these some of these prints get incredibly wide, and it just doesn't seem... Did you say 16 inches long, 13 inches wide? Um, good question. Where is it? <laughs> Either way, that's... I mean, that's enormous. Yeah, 16 inches long, long and 13 yeah. inches wide at the toes. At the toes, even. The yeah, toes, wow. that's, that's crazy. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, right? I'm trying to think of how what what that would mean in terms of the so, the rest of the size or how you could uh, uh, extrapolate from that. And you also like got the rest of the body. You also got to wonder how much that has been altered over time too. Right. And you mean like in the story or the actual no, material? No, the actual shifted? material it was left in. Yeah. yeah. Be- because as you're stepping down on something soft, it's going to leave a bigger print than you actually than the size of your foot. You know. Right. And maybe not. Maybe it was something that didn't do that. Uh, do you have one, Chris, you want to read? Let's see. Uh, where was the uh, one that I was seeing here? Um, I still want to hear about this uh, horned lizard found in stone. Yeah, we'll, got, we'll, if you we'll have get that, there. If you have that on deck. Oh, okay. I, have, I found the one that I had. Go for it. You can do it. Okay. So this was, um, uh, there were a, a couple of them. Uh, we, we haven't done the, uh, the, the white sands in New Mexico one, right? No. Okay, I don't think so, we've done anything from this chapter. Yeah, yeah. Giant, and I, I have an affinity for white sands, uh, and this one is giant tracks seemingly of a human being were found by a government trapper in the Alkali Flats area of Great White Sands, New Mexico in 1931. A year later, a party of four, including O. Fred Arthur, supervisor of the Lincoln National Forest, set out to investigate the tracks with the trapper Ellis Wright as their guide. They found 13 imprints crossing a relic desert basin in the eastern foothills of the San Andreas Mountains. Despite the great size of the tracks, the investigators were convinced they were left by humans. Quote, for the print was perfect and even the instep plainly marked, unquote. Oval-shaped, the prints are 16 to 22 inches long and 8 to 12 inches wide, with a distance between them of about 5 feet and a separation in width of 2 feet. The site was revisited in 1972, 1974, and 1981, and more tracks were found. When they were first studied, it had been noted the imprints were two and a half inches deep, but in 1974, 42 years later, they were one to one and a half inches above the level of the ground. Weirdly, there's an exclamation point at the end. The compacting of the soft earth by the heavy tread of the creature had preserved the prints while the surrounding soil had been eroded by wind and occasional rain. Oh, I get it. By 1981, the track stood pedestal-like a few inches above the desert floor. Um, uh, There's no doubt that the prints were those of living creatures. One suggestion is that they were made as recently as the 1850s by U.S. Army camels. That's a a jump. Uh, A more considered view is that they are at least 10,000 years old, and belong to now extinct native camel or mammoth. But the spacing of the footprint seems to suggest a two-legged creature. The mysterious tracks have been protected for further study by archaeologists. And this is from a 1981 U.S. Army report. Hmm. And they're oval-shaped? Uh, yeah, oval-shaped. Yep. So the, um, you're talking about 
uh, you know, maybe the, the size of the footprint changes over time, you know, if it erodes or, or whatnot. But yeah. what's, what's really interesting to me, uh, or telling, I guess, is the idea that they would be five feet apart. Like that's, that's a pretty considerable distance, especially if you found right. whatever they said, 13 tracks. Yeah. And the, it is, I mean, the, the direct quote, if we are to believe that this is correct research, uh, coming from this is that the print was perfect. And even the instep plainly marked. What is an instep? It's, you know, the, the curve of your foot uh, along the inside, the instep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they were feet-like. They weren't just like straight ovals. Right. That's, yeah, that's what mm. it, yep. yeah. There are some. Because they were 16 to 22 inches long and 8 to 12 inches wide. Right. But do they have toes? Because camels have like hooves, right? True. True. Yeah, it doesn't say. Yeah, who knows? No pictures? There is a picture. Uh, it's not a close-up though. Yeah, uh, okay. and it just—it's like this old guy pointing uh, what looks like a, a, a stick at this rock lump. But it also says that you know there was significant, I guess, erosion or change from 1931 uh, to 1974 because it was noted when they first found them in 31 that the imprints were two and a half inches imprint down into the soil. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that idea that it, it's like the the step almost preserved that soil and sort of yeah. made it untouchable and well the it's, the weathering yeah it's crazy nice. the imprint of a leather shoe was found in triassic limestone in fisher canyon pershing county nevada in 1927 by alfred e knapp according to micrographs of the print the leather was hand-stitched with a finer thread than was customarily used by shoemakers in 1927. Triassic limestone is conventionally dated as between 180 and 225 million years old. I'm always kind of skeptical about these, like, modern ephemera found in ancient, you know, substrata. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who knows? But uh, I love that they have such tight details as the the thread. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one of my issues with this is this is assuming that ancient people had the same like technological evolution that we did, you know, for finding stuff that looks like stuff we would make today implies that, you know, what, what did they say? 180 million years ago that, that people did this exact same thing came along the same path. Right. Seems unlikely. Um, I mean, not impossible, I guess. We're all, if we're all humans doing it, maybe there's something inborn that creates those type of patterns. Um, but also, like, when they, when they date this stuff, they don't account for catastrophe. Right. True. Well, and also, you know, if they said that that, that type of thread was thinner than was customarily used at the time, I wonder at what point in the future that, like, gauge of thread became more common and, you know, my mind goes to what if some person from that period of time, you know, modern day or whatever, was somehow stepping backwards into, um, you know, in, mm. into that part of time. Right. right I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And time travel is certainly a possible explanation. I mean, some of them are some of the out of place artifacts are very, very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly when things are in, you know, found in stone. Yeah. That's always, yeah. On, under the heading strange and improbable skeletons, uh, <laughs> human skulls with horns were found in a burial mound in Sarah Bradford County, Pennsylvania in the 1880s. Except for the horny protrusions, some two inches above the eyebrows, the, 
the men to whom these skeletons belonged were anatomically normal, though at seven feet tall, well above average height. It was estimated they were buried about 1200 AD. The find was made by a reputable group of antiquarians, including a Pennsylvania state historian and dignitary of the Presbyterian Church and two professors. Uh, Some of the bones were sent to the American Investigating Museum in Philadelphia, where, of course, they seem to have disappeared. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. Right, guys, those were my cousins. <laughs> I've been wondering where they got buried. The, uh, I don't think I've heard too many stories of horns, but I, isn't there some something that can cause people to grow horn-like protuberances? Yeah, yeah, I don't remember what it's called, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, although... Some kind of calcium or something. Yeah, but I guess if they're symmetrical in in the same place on both sides and look like horns, that's kind of weird. I mean, yeah. it's definitely weird. <laughs> it's just, you know, like, was that an anomaly even for someone, you know, like a giant, you know? Right. Also having two of them, I think, uh, it says there were two, two seven feet, foot tall. Okay, yeah, the men. There's more than one. Oh, right. Yeah. So having the same thing occur on multiple uh, skeletons. Yeah. Hmm. Two inches above the eyebrows. So right where you would expect like horns on an animal, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. They're very much more like the a satyr, you know, horn or. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, what that, maybe some people had that and it just, you know, went away. Over time, yeah. but I mean, that's not that long ago. That's 1200 BC, they think they were, or AD, they were buried, so. 1200 AD? Yeah, that's not long ago at all. It did say AD, right? I changed the page already. I don't know. Yes, uh, AD 1200. Yeah, yeah, AD. Yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're looking 800 years ago. But, you know, we don't know what was here 800 years ago. They could have been the last of their kind. It's true. So, yeah, do you have one, Chris? Um, let's see. I mean, there are always the great ones that, uh, you know, appear in several of the different lost giants type books, uh, yeah. like this one at the center of one of the large Ohio burial mounds. And remember that Ohio is the place, uh, for, it, uh, the mounds excavators in 1891 found the skeleton of a massive man wrapped in copper armor on the head was a copper cap and copper moldings encased the jaws the arms were clad in copper and so were the chest and stomach on either side of the head were wooden antlers encased in copper and the mouth cavity was filled with immense but decayed pearls around the neck was a necklace of bear's teeth inlaid with pearls beside the skeleton of the giant lay that of a woman the remains were found at a depth of 14 feet in a mound 500 feet long, 200 feet wide, and 28 feet high. And this is from uh, a Nature Journal Nature from 1891. Uh, I, I wonder what mound that was. I wonder if you could go back and figure out exactly which mound that was probably gone now. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, so were the bones, if any, were retrieved. Right. And the Smithsonian does have listings for some of this stuff that was supposedly turned into the Smithsonian, but they're inaccessible. Yes. And that, that has been so that the fact of that has been so, I think, uh, mucked up by the sort of, you know, the disinfo campaign of this is, you know, this is fake. 
but then there was some real stuff that's part of it, and then people are saying it's fake, and then you have a bunch of skeptics who were going really far to one side and saying that you know it's it's a bunch of bunk because there's no records of this. Right. But if you look back at some of the you know like and if you if you're able to look at it from ancillary points of view again sort of like what does greg bishop say like uh um uh an oblique sort of angles that you can approach this from uh then you see things like what was the name of the guy there's this particular guy who was the curator and he was like the head of the smithsonian for the longest time uh around that time eight the 1890s the turn of the century the last century and he was just all the accounts of him where he was like this rampant demagogue that had very, very specific ideas about science, how things were supposed to go. Yeah. And he was suppressing a lot of the, you know, uh, a lot of things that weren't going along with that. And so and then we start to put some pieces together. I feel like it does lend itself to, you know, very much being true, whether or not it's been blown out of proportion who knows? But yeah, yeah, I think it's absolutely true. Well, yeah. I think it was in Richard Dewhurst's book. He talks about, uh, yeah, yep. one of the guys who ran the Smithsonian was basically was saying, you know, if you find giants, just bury it, you know, yeah. get, get rid of yeah. it because they were afraid, you know, that type of thing supported the religious viewpoint of things. And yep. clearly that doesn't fit with uh, Darwinism. Right. You know, because why would yep. we have giants, but yet we're here and the giants are gone. So no, no, no we just got to get rid of that. That's nonsense. And it's just yeah. going to support the church. Yeah. I got yep. out of a, a pagan discord group for bringing up this entire topic. Really? I, well, yeah. I remember I was telling Sarai about this when I had him on the show because they were talking about this guy who was a Norse pagan, but believed uh, in the objective existence of, of giants. And they were dogging on him for it, and so I brought this up, and I immediately got booted from that Discord. <laughs> That's rough. That sounds about right. You know, the idea of like you know the them wanting to squash it because they think it defends the Bible or anything like that kind of reminds me of, of that previous story with the uh, the guys with horns. That was my first thought when when I heard that was oh that sounds like something that somebody would have you know, planted or, or, or talked about as far as like evidence for the devil kind of a thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, these yeah. giant men with horns and, or whatever, but you know, at the end of the day, if, if that stuff is, or was real, I mean, there's a good chance it's just anomalous or strange. It doesn't necessarily have to be anything relating to the Bible. Well, it seems like, I mean, and every day we're now hearing about more and more subspecies of homo sapiens or, and not subspecies because they're not, you know, like side species, whatever you want yeah. to phrase it. Parallel species. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because at one point it was like, well, there were Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And now you have the, you know, the dwarves and the, the, the Denisovans and. Um, Homo florensis. Yeah. yeah. There's, I think that. Was that florensis? Like, I think there's nine officially acknowledged uh, branches now. Right. And that's and there's more and more evidence that everybody was, you know, messing around with one another and yeah. Yeah, intermingling. Yep. So the idea that this was that that we know all of this already when we have only discovered most of this in the last ten years, you know, it's it's like okay, maybe we can wake up to the fact now that there's that that we have less inform, you know, like because of the disasters, because of the end of the ice age, most things have been wiped from the planet. So we've found just a few things here and there and have already made this many different subspecies. 
So how many more were there at one point? And, you know, who may have survived, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe there was a whole race of large people with horns, but only a handful of them survived, you know, the, the end of the ice age. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's impossible to, to really tell, you know, with just the way that the world moves and the way that things change, you know, it's, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and Chris, it looks like, um, Homo florescensis. Florescensis. Okay, yeah, Flores, Flores man. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think of some of the weird vestigial things that you know we have as human beings, like I don't know, I don't know, appendix or. Uh, so apparently, they're now know. thinking the appendix appendix isn't as vestigial. Vesti- oh, really? Oh, man. Yeah, it, that that actually does serve some function. Oh, I love that. Okay, that's good. That, that like was that. something recently that I that I heard that they were like, well, you we might have been wrong about the appendix. Yeah. I feel like I heard that too, but what, what was it for? Uh, something to do with immunity. Okay. Mm, okay. Oh, I believe that. Well, anyway, I still think that there's, you know, a lot there very well could have been something that is like a remnant of the whatever the, you know, previous incarnation uh of a species was that you know where there or it could be a mutation it could be a mutation that you know uh went far and wide and you had several people from the same you know family that had this yeah yeah exactly yeah. so all right let's let's hit another story here this one's a little longer he was found sitting cross-legged on a ledge in a small cave in a granite mountain. It sounds like the beginning of a fantasy novel. His hands were folded in his lap in a timeless attitude of a Buddha. He appeared to be middle-aged. His skin was brown and wrinkled, his nose flat, the forehead low, the mouth broad and thin-lipped. He was 14 inches tall. The mummy was discovered in 1932 by gold prospectors blasting the walls of a gulch in Pedro Mountains, 60 miles southwest of Casper, Wyoming. After studying it, puzzled scientists ventured the theory that it was a mummified pygmy and possibly the progenitor of the American Indian. When it died, it was given a ceremonial burial. Um... When it died? Oh, I see. Okay, that's, yeah. Displayed in sideshows for several years, the Pedro Mountain Mummy was eventually purchased by Ivan T. Goodman, a Casper businessman, and taken to New York City. The remains, x-rayed by Dr. Harry Shapiro of the American Museum of Natural History and certified as genuine by the Anthropology Department of Harvard University, were thought to be some, uh, were thought by some to be those of a 65-year-old person. The speculation generated interest in the legends of Shoshone and Crow Indians of Wyoming about miniature people only inches tall. Following Goodman's death in 1950, the mummy passed into the hands of Leonard Wadler and disappeared, but interest in it continued nationwide. In 1979, pictures of Shapiro's x-rays were given to Dr. George Gill, professor of anthropology at the University of Wyoming. The withered little body, he concluded, was that of an infant or a fetus, possibly of an unknown tribe of prehistoric Indians. He believes that the infant had been afflicted with hmm, anencephaly, a congenital abnormality that would account for the adult proportions of its skeleton. Discoveries of mummified remains are not uncommon in Wyoming, which has an arid climate. As Dr. Gill points out, the Indians may have found other mummies of similarly diseased infants and quite naturally assumed that they were the remains of small adults. This, in turn, would tend to support the legend of little people. 
But Pedro, as the mummy is known, remains a scientific curiosity. All we have are tantalizing bits of information, Dr. Gill remarked. He and the other anthropologists still hope to locate the missing mummy for further examination. So, uh, anencephaly, um, it looks like it's um, the absence of a major portion of the brain, skull, and scalp. Yeah. It feels like this is a little bit of the, you know, like UFO, uh, uh, star child skull kind of situation going on here. So, I was, I was going to say... If this was today, Stephen yeah. Greer would be touting this as an alien. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it seems the consensus is that it it was a living person, at yeah. least. I'm looking at pictures. It is very, very small. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I mean, think of that. Do you remember that actor who uh, was in the 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 weird island of Dr. Moreau with uh, um, Marlon Brando? I might be going too deep in a reference here. I don't know. But he was, you know, he was an individual that had some sort of, uh, you know, genetic or chromosomal disorder. And he was tiny. I mean, he was literally sitting on Marlon Brando's shoulder. Um, uh, oh, wow. Very creepy film. Um, uh, there's a whole, you know, weird, weird thing behind that, too. But, uh, yeah, the there, of course, is always, you know, the there is like some truth to there are some mummified remains that you find uh in southeast asia and in 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 india and uh parts of uh like northern tibet and stuff where certain monks will essentially like enter a state of samadhi uh through meditation and will for you know in 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 their eyes and i think you know for the the people that are around them in their culture they're dropping their body intentionally and moving on uh to exist in the diamond body um the subtle body so there is this there is a myth that has its 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 uh, roots in truth of people finding that and that actually being something that has happened but I think that this particular case is definitely some sort of ritual where they, you know, they're the, the person, the infant with the disease died and they sort of mummified the corpse in a particular ritualistic way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, the little corpse that, uh, Greer was going around with saying it was an alien when they actually did the work right. on it. Not only was right. it real, but it was completely human. Yeah. The serious. Yep. Which stuff. which was completely buried if you if you watch the documentary like it comes yep. back with having human DNA, and he's just kind of like, but we don't know who the the father was or something like that, and just moves <laughs> on like that was the information he was hoping for, and it's like yep. you, they just told you it was human, you know? Because yep. I think just, they I think it's easier to track the mother's DNA than the father's if I'm not mistaken. Right, it's mitochondrial DNA, yeah. Um, Just let everyone know, I brought my uh, my co-host Ian Burton on to talk about this because oh, cool. hey. hi, hello, Welcome. Ian. Hey guys, how are you? I hope I'm coming out clear. By the way, I'm in my car currently, but thank you for inviting me in late. <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 hey, you're, you're a little hollow, but you're okay. Oh, I get it. No hollow sounding. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> somebody caught that joke. <laughs> Nick's hollow, I suppose. Have you normally do Strange Dominions with uh, Octavian here? Yes, he does. He's been on two episodes yes. so far. Ah, okay. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I'm still working it out. I might switch over to um off my Bluetooth here in a minute if I sound bad. But yeah, I just started. He just invited me on. 
So it's we haven't done too much yet, but it's been fun so far. We got a lot of you know I'm excited for what we're working on. Nice. All right. Well, let's uh, let's continue with mysteries of the unexplained here. Chris, do you want to pick one? Well, uh, I'm going to pick this one just because it's it's the famous one, uh, and if people haven't heard this, then it's about time you hear about it. Uh, in 1911, miners began to work the rich guano deposits in Lovelock Cave, 22 miles southwest of the Nevada town of Lovelock. They had removed several carloads of guano when they came upon some Indian relics. Uh, I'm not sure it doesn't say what tribe it is. Oh, okay. I guess the Paiute. Um, uh, soon afterward, a mummy was also found reportedly. It was that of a six and a half foot tall person with distinctly red hair. And that's in quotes, distinctly red. Um, according to the legends of the local Paiute Indians, a tribe of red haired giants, the Sitikas were once the mortal enemies of the Indians in the area who had joined forces to drive the red heads out. John T. Reed of Lovelock, a mining engineer avidly interested in Indian lore, became convinced that the mummy substantiated the Paiute legend, and in the years that followed, devoted himself to proving it. Included in his growing file on red-headed giants were descriptions of hair robes once worn by a few Paiutes. The hair was human, and it was of a reddish-brown color. In the meantime, the discoveries at Lovelock had generated interest among archaeologists, and in 1912, the University of California at Berkeley and the Nevada State Historical Society sent Mr. L.L. L. Loud to investigate the cave. Loud found the archaeological deposit so disturbed in the rough and tumble of the mining operation that he only salvaged artifacts, which he took back to the University of California. Twelve years later, in 1924, the Museum of the American Indian in New York sent out to Mr. M. R. Harrington sent out an M. R. A, sent out a Mr. M. R. Harrington to excavate the cave. He too collected artifacts and no bones. He apparently requested that one whole skeleton be reburied. Probably this was to appease the Indian employees who were upset that such disrespectful treatment was accorded to the remains of the deceased, understandably. Uh, but the legend of the red-haired giants has persisted. In the next few years, more skeletal remains were found in the Lovelock area. Measuring the length of the unearthed femurs, Reed and others deduced that they belonged to people ranging from six to nine and a half or ten feet in height. Anthropologists, however, have stated that the tallest skeleton studied so far in the region was only five foot eleven inches, a not inconsiderable size in that time and place, but hardly a giant. Furthermore, they have pointed out when mummies with black hair are returned from a day cave, dark cave into daylight, the hair often turns red. No one has been able to establish whether this happened to the Lovelock mummies. Today, a few of them are the remains. A skull, some bones, and artifacts can still be seen at the Humboldt Museum in Winnemucca, Nevada. Artifacts from the Lovelock State of from the Lovelock area are also displayed at the Nevada State Historical Society's museum in Reno, but no bones, and no mention is made of giant of a giant people. Anthropologists concede, however, that red-headed Indians did exist in the West, and this is from the Nevada State Historical Society Quarterly from 1975. And if people aren't familiar with the this this sort of the legend of the red-headed giants from Lovelock Cave has become sort of a, a a big like trope amongst that mythology. And I think it's, it's, you know, uh, spoken about in the sort of infamous, um, uh, book, uh, by Jim Brandon, uh, 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 uh of the sort of haunted, uh, America, 
type of research. Are you referring to uh, the Rebirth of Pan? Yeah, to the book particularly. The book is Rebirth of Pan, Yeah. yeah. But his research was this sort of like, I mean, there's a lot of things that are problematic about Jim Brandon and the guy who he actually was. But uh, some of the research, while there's some interesting stuff in there, um, uh, a lot of it sort of has this, you know, kind of like ethnographic, you know, um, uh, colonialist bent to it. However, the Lovelock thing is something that has kept on going. And a lot of people have, uh, you know, sort of had vested interest in that. And it's become uh, something that at least for a while people were pretty interested in. Um, yeah, and I mean, it further suggests that there was another race of human-like beings here right, in the distant past, you know, and not that distant past in some cases. Yeah, and there's some legends too, I think, and I can't, because I don't have them in front of me, that correlate a little bit to this, and I believe there's one, and it could be that this is simply, you know, uh, hyperbole that's developed from the Lovelock legend of these being the, the, these redheaded giants being cannibals and there being some sort of war between the native, you know, people of the time and these giant redheaded cannibals, which, you know, uh, I'll take that story. Uh, I'll hope for that to be true. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, when, when you talk about giants, I mean, we're talking, like six, seven feet tall, right? We're not talking like, right. I mean, they were saying that for, for the Lovelock stuff, you know, and again, it depends on who you believe there, you know, there's some that are saying, Oh no, they're no more than, you know, five foot 11, but then there's some that, you know, uh, according to them, they're, you know, finding some much larger remains. Yeah. And even five eleven, nine and a half or 10 feet, even, even five eleven was large for the time. Also, we're using the term Indians because that is what is written in the book. Exactly. You know, the yep. book is from 1982, so it's not we're not being disrespectful in this sense. We're just reading what's written. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's entirely possible that, you know, if, if they did exist, that they could just be people, just, just you know, another culture of humans at, at that time. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I think that very, yeah. I think in a lot of circumstances, it's probably other types of humans. Uh I also, yeah. but I also, I guess I also leave open or I, uh, the, for the fact that other types of humans could be, uh, a lot different from us. Yeah, you know? sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it kind of gets into the question of what we were talking about earlier with things like, oh gosh, how do you even say it? Flo- floresiensis, yeah. homo floresiensis, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the various hobbits. different sort of categories. I mean, how, how deep do you get with the categorization of things when they're all, you know, essentially, part of the same, uh, super category or, or right. whatever. Right. Exactly. You know, you can break them down into all kinds of different subcategories. And that's but, what we seem to like to do as our modern day humans, at least yep. we really like to do that. And, you know, they keep saying, well, these, some of these things may have been, you know, uh, where the myths of little people came from and it's like, right. But it also might be that there's a, you know, that that might have more of a paranormal explanation than a, and then an actual, you know, but who knows? I mean, maybe it's a combination. Yeah. And I also am not, I, I'm not, and this is going completely into speculative land, but you know, that's what I like to do because I make movies. Uh, um, but <laughs> it, it's, you know, the idea that different types of humans might have had, you know, different abilities and features. I mean, you could even sure. do this from a completely non-speculative, like, or speculative scientific way. And, you know, I don't know, take 
take all those uh, those uh, documentaries you see now about like the superpowers of animals, and they talk about you know how animals can sense magnetic fields and how you know they you know all these can do all these types of crazy things. I you know wouldn't I I don't know what other humans could have done, but I think this idea that somehow we are the smartest, best version of the human that is with the most abilities and most senses that's ever existed. That might not be true. Yeah. Um, uh, at all, <laughs> you know, it's we might in fact be dumber, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's inconvenient because, you know, no other human can, can disagree with us. They're not around. We're, <laughs> we're the only ones that have survived. And if so, they are, they're hiding. Right. Yeah. Wisely. For now. Yes. What was that? I was saying for now. Oh yeah. Maybe for now. Day. Right. Maybe one day the the, uh, the people from beneath yeah. the legends go will finally show themselves. Totally. You know, you were talking about of the giants, and I was thinking of you know back in you know Magellan's time. You guys heard, uh, um, you know, when Magellan landed in South America. I was thinking about the old stories that they reported back to Europe that they had found these giant people, like tribes yeah. of giants. Yep. And I guess there is evidence back then that there were a large or large you know people who lived there. But it's thought that they exaggerated them and that they had mentioned that they they had, you know, captured two and, and brought them back. But they, of course, you know, mysteriously died on the way. So it, I was just thinking about that because that's one of those uh, legends or or, you know, myths that goes way back that it it seems to have a lot of veracity in certain ways. But then it extends into, you know, almost obvious kind of colonial hoax territory. It's it's just a like the giant, like the giants, especially in in the West. All those stories are really fascinating. And I was just I was kind of reading up not too long ago about um, Magellan and, you know, certain other explorers that had kind of reported that. And then, you know, later on, we had a lot more from North America and South America. I just wanted to add that in. Yeah, <laughs> there, well, that, that's, I think that's probably true. And I think there probably is something too to the like the colonial uh, uh, exoticism of like the, the giant as, you know, uh, a a race to be conquered, um, which, Mm. you know, I don't know who it could even go to some sort of like weird biblical, you know, David uh, versus Goliath thing that had to do with, you know, whatever Christian um, backing was behind the colonialism. Um, So I think, yeah, that's, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some stories that may be true, but also ones where it's like, look at these giant, you know, uh, savages that we captured that, oh, whoops, they died along the way. We can't tell you how (laughs) crazy they were and how, you know, brave we were to capture them. Right. I feel like, isn't there, isn't there a Native American, you know, on the other is known for being very tall. Like that's one of their very uh, defining features is how tall they are. I might be mixing that up with something else. No, I, there is that. I can't think of what tribe it is, but that is true. And that's, that's a, you know, another thing. You have this idea that Magellan or, you know, these explorers are kind of reporting back that there's 15 foot tall men, which is kind of, you know, you look back and you're like, well, that's exactly what, you know, maybe it's like a funding thing. But then you go back and, you know, a lot of Native American tribes themselves have specific and very recurrent mythology of true giants. And then, of course, you have not only, you know, uh, tribal people who were known even to this day to be, you know, big in stature. But then you do have the possibility that, you know, there have been tons of these excavations. And, you know, it's one of those things that they 
there seems to have been evidence in concrete, like they, they found these bones, but they all vanished and nobody can yeah. in the modern days yeah. to get leads on them. Well, which, we were talking uh, about that earlier. I mean, the Smithsonian actually has records of them, but they're inaccessible. And that's what makes it interesting. We're like, all right, if it's a hoax, that's fair. Or if, you know, somebody was, you know, trying to get, you know, in with the Smithsonian and was exaggerating. But then why would the Smithsonian themselves record them and yeah. then make it, you know, so... Well, these these are gone now, or you can't look at them because I, I heard like a mo- I can't remember don't don't like a modern um, somebody was mentioned or I wrote or I read something not long ago like in the last couple of years where somebody had tried to approach the Smithsonian about some of these old giant stories and they were met with that same rebuttal like everybody kind of like just acted like they didn't know it existed and then they you know they brought up that there were records of them and then they kind of just cut contact like yeah. they wouldn't go into it which is that that makes it interesting to me well there's also the whole grand canyon thing that happened around the turn of the century where mm-hmm. you know these 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 researchers from the smithsonian supposedly found something that looked like egyptian artifacts in the grand canyon and it went on a, it was in a newspaper, and then suddenly the Smithsonian denied it, said it was all a hoax, and that's that. But not only that, they they completely closed off to this day that part of the Grand Canyon, and that part of the Grand Canyon was then named all this Egyptian stuff. So it's like, that's weird. It's like okay, was it a hoax, and you're just running with it, or... Did you not want, and it may not have been Egyptian, it could have been Phoenician or who knows. I mean, whoever discovered it may have gotten wrong, whatever it was, but clearly it may have been a culture that they didn't want to acknowledge made it here before Columbus. What happens if you try and go to that area of the Grand Canyon? It is patrolled very heavily. Okay. And it's, they say it's, it's, it, yeah. you're not allowed to go there because it's too dangerous. Yeah. I, I mean, mean but there, you can, you can pretty much like that area. If you do a little bit of research, you can pretty much figure out exactly where that is. And if you were able to get there, you might be, unless it's been closed off. Which is very possible. That is, if it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah that's true. another one of those myths that I feel like it's gotten so much skeptic uh, hullabaloo around it, like that they don't want it to be true, that it's really hard to find the original, tr- you know, the, the, the original pieces. And if it is true, though, like they have it covered up for a reason. But like who who is whose job would get lost if that came out as true, that there is Egyptian artifacts in the Grand Canyon? Well, today, probably no one. Yeah. But it's just tradition that, you know, or that or that's honestly like it's lost. Like if that actually happened, nobody at the institution now knows anything about it. I mean, that that kind of stuff happens. Yes. It isn't necessarily as well run as, you know, uh, uh, it's not like the Watcher Society or something. People are, are losing stuff left and right. Um, and, so, o- and over time, I mean, there, yeah. there there's a break in continuality. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. that's a lot of what happened with Roswell is that, you know, there, people are like, well, the Air Force needs to t- you know tell us what happened at Roswell. Well, you know, the Air Force, I don't even think was was a thing back then. Yeah, And the records just may not exist anymore. So, I mean, right. at this point, this far down the line, it may not be that they're hiding anything. They may really just not know. Yeah. Well, with Roswell, there there is, as far as I know, an official an official explanation that came out in the 90s. Yeah. So there there is, that's the balloon explanation. Yeah, uh, some which kind of weather balloon or whatever. Is not completely unbelievable, but also has some holes in it. 
<laughs> the the weather balloon. <laughs> well, yeah, because it, it came down. It had holes in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you guys are talking about the security or that that uh, this uh, part of the Grand Canyon is patrolled. I bet the security is not nearly as good as Area 51. Right. We could probably just put out a Facebook event, get a million people to sign up to go there, <laughs> and then storm <laughs> storm the Grand Canyon. I'll get a job as a security guard and let you guys in. All right, there sounds go. good. <laughs> All right. Uh, when the great breakwater at Plymouth, England was being built in the early part of the 19th century, stone for the job was brought from the Duke of Bedford's marble quarries in Oriston on the eastern shore of the Plym Estuary. These quarries then covered some 25 acres and were known for their for the close-grained, finely variegated Devonian marble that they produced. The only defect was that here and there, wide seams of clay wandered through the 400 million old stone and in places gave way to a partially clay-filled caverns. In one of these caverns, completely surrounded by solid rock, the fossil bones of three rhinoceroses were found. Rhinoceroses were common in this area 2 million to 65 million years ago. The cave was 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, and 12 feet deep. It lay 70 feet below the surface, 60 feet horizontally from the edge of the quarry, and 160 feet from the edge of the estuary. It contained no stalactites or stalagmites, nor any other indication of former opening. In short, the cave contained no indication, except for the perfectly preserved rhinoceros bones, that it had ever been anything but hermetically sealed. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I just makes me wonder about all the other places that we haven't discovered. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little pockets. Little here pockets and there. that, you know, have got just the coolest stuff in there. But, you know, I'm a complete knowledge addict. So um, do, do, do you, do you want to make Taylor happy, Chris, and read about the horned lizard? Oh, yes. do it, please. I can read about the horned lizard. Yeah. Yay. So this is a very brief one. Um. A horned lizard that had been found alive in a block of stone, quote, so solid as to preclude the entrance of the smallest insect, unquote, was sent to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington by Judge Houghton of New Mexico in 1853. The lizard lived for two days after its release. This is from Scientific American, uh, July 30th, 1853. <laughs> yeah, what? What's the deal with that? And and that's not the only case like that. There's oh no tons of stuff. There's, there's frogs and fish and yeah. Let, let's get to one of the frog ones. Uh, during excavations being made for the Hartlepool Waterworks in Durham, England, in 1865, workmen inadvertently freed a living toad from a block of magnesian limestone 25 feet below ground level. The cavity in which the toad had been contained was no larger than its body and presented the appearance of being cast of it. The toad's eyes shone with unusual brilliancy, and it was full of vivacity on its liberation. Nice nice big words in this article. Uh, it appeared, when first discovered, desirous to perform the process, the process of respiration. Who wrote this? Um, this is like Lovecraft wrote this. <laughs> but evidently experienced some difficulty, and the only sign of success consisted of a barking noise, which it continues invariably to make at present on being touched. The toad is in the possession of Mr. S. Horner, the president of the Natural History Society, and continues as a in a in a lively state as when it was found. 
On a minute examination, its mouth can be found to be completely closed, and the barking noise it makes proceeds from its nostrils. The claws of its forefeet are turned inwards, and its hind ones are of extraordinary length and unlike the present English toad. The toad, when first released, was of a pale color and not readily distinguished from the stone, but shortly after, its color grew darker until it became a fine olive brown. A local clergyman and geologist, the Reverend Robert Taylor, expressed the opinion that the toad was 6,000 years old. <laughs> At the last report, 1865, the creature was to be given a place of honor in the Hartlepool Museum, its primary habitation, the rock being provided for accommodation should it so desire. Wow. And that comes out of the zoologist. I, I've heard this exact story. I wonder if, like, Fort found that at some point, and I heard he it from his yeah, books. Yeah, probably. Thoroughly enough. Like, like, there's so many details to that, like, the, you know, being the same color as the stone and then changing color. You know, okay, maybe it's some kind of dust or whatever that was washed away. But being, you know, the, so tight in the stone that it was as if it was cast around it. Yeah. What? What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I, I, I want to know what this like clergyman and geologist who's just like it's six thousand years old. Like where where he's getting that? <laughs> I know, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> but the the thing is with with toads, it's like okay, so these things are found in rocks. This is by no means the only toad found in a rock like this, and right. they're also raining yeah. from the sky. What do toads yeah. do? What are they doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's no wonder that they're always a part of like witches' spells, right? Yeah. True. Yeah. Um, do you, do you want to do one, Chris? Sure. Uh, I'm going to do one, which I think is, uh, right in between the, the going from old footsteps, uh, and skeletons to living animals, which is, uh, the tools of tiny people, mm. uh, in the last years of the 19th century, hundreds of Flint tools were found beneath the moorland peat of East Lancashire's Pennine Hills. By their minute size, they seem to belong not to the province of ancient man, but rather to the world of dwarves or gnomes. None of the tools found, scrapers, borers, and tiny crescent-shaved knives, was longer than half an inch, and many were smaller than a quarter of an inch. The flaking by which they were shaped and brought to a sharp edge was so fine that in many cases it could only be appreciated through a magnifying glass. The flints were not quote, bird points used for bird hunting seems evident from the fact that nothing resembling an arrowhead was found among them. And while the scrapers and borers may conceivably have been fitted with wooden handles, they are far too small to be used by ordinary human hands. Two observations suggest that this was not done. No board or engraved materials were found in conjunction with the flints, and even with handles, the scrapers would have been hopelessly impractical for the task of scraping flesh from animal hides. The same observations apply to the crescent-shaped knives, which were, in any case, clearly not designed to have handles or to be placed in wooden holders. For such reasons, some have guessed that the knives were ritual replicas of the crescent moon, but why, in that case, they should have been found alongside small versions of conventional tools is a mystery, unless those two are supposed to have had a ritual purpose. Uh, and then, uh, let's see in the, if the, if the Lancaster, uh, finds had been unique, they would probably have been forgotten, but other examples of tools apparently fashioned by miniature people were found in England beneath the floor of a drowned forest in Devon and in the sandy heathland of Suffolk. 
and more finds of pygmy flints have been made in other parts of the world, in Egypt, Africa, Australia, France, and Sicily, for example, and in India, where small crescent-shaped knives of flint and agate were found in caves in the Vidya Hills. Whoever the makers of the pygmy flints were, and whatever their purpose, they seem to have been an established class of artisans and to have plied their delicate craft from one end of the world to the other. It was the gnomes. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Or the um, dwarves. Right, or the yeah, hobbits, the whatever. <laughs> um, an hour and a half after stoking his fire, Mr. W.J. Clark of Rugby, England, reached over to poke the coals. As he broke open one coal, he saw something move and snatched it out of the fireplace. It, it proved to be a living toad, and it survived for five weeks. It had no mouth and was almost transparent. Photographs of the model were offered for uh, of this marvel were offered for sale to the public by the London Stereoscopic Company. And there's actually a picture of it here. Yeah. Um, it says uh, above is a photograph of the live toad. Mr. Clark of Rugby found embedded in coal. Frogs can hibernate in a casing of mud for months, but could they survive long enough for the mud to metamorphize into rock? And that's a really good uh, question. That is. Because both of these, interestingly, were found with their mouths not functional. Right. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, it's I, I don't feel like it's out of the question that these things can somehow, you know, just go into a, 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 a state where they, they don't age, they don't, you know. Yeah. Uh, like a stasis. Well, how, how, long, how long does that take? I don't know. To meta- metamorphose rock out of mud or whatever. Surely that's got to take a long time. I mean, you you're think. not doing it over the course of a week. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, to be in there for, you know, a million years or whatever. But I guess once you're in stasis, right. if it's steep enough, you're in stasis, you know? 6,000 years is a blink of an eye to a rock. <laughs> and apparently a toad. And and also a toad. Um, Let's see. There are a lot of toad stories in this book. Yes, There's- yes, there are. There is a species, and I guess don't quote me on it, in, I guess, the western United States and, you know, or maybe Mexico. And those toads, and I, I can't remember the name of them, but they, they do apparently hibernate and just kind of stay in stasis underground for the better part of a year. And then certain rains hit, I guess, in late spring and then come out and mate. But now again, don't don't quote me totally on this, but I, that's not 6,000 years, but... I just that that popped in my mind, like toads that yeah. can't exist, you know. I guess without food or really any air. Yeah, that stays long period. Yeah. yeah, 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 totally. Well, I mean, there are lots of there are insects that do that, like you know, cicadas essentially. Yeah, yeah, hibernate for like what seven years or something like that. Yeah, or they're actually different times that they do so. Yeah, doesn't mean maybe some mammals or amphibians or you know. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, none of us are herpetologists, so we don't we don't know the specifics of the hibernation life cycles of frogs. Maybe this toad came out and he's like, "Man, I've been down there for six months," and this and the priest is like, six thousand years." <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Check out WhereDidTheRoadGo.com. You will find an archive of every show, right back to the very first one that aired January 26, 2013. There's links to all of our social media, Discord, Facebook, the Facebook group, 
Twitter, YouTube. You can pick up merch at our store that is linked on the page. You can become a Patreon and get extra content every month for as little as $3 a month. You can leave a donation, go through blog entries, and you can contact us. If you have stories you'd like to share for a future listener stories episode, stories at wheredidtheroadgo.com is the place to send them. For general contact, it's contact at wheredidtheroadgo.com. And if you want to mail me something, you can do so at P.O. Box 444, Ovid, New York, 14521. I'd like to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons, because without you, this show would not be what it is. And I want to give a special shout out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Allison Cook, Super Inframan. 36 Dingo, Chuck Shutters, Leanne Cherry, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gayaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Lemina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Cicernos, Bill Luminati, Craig Parmenter, Diane B, MTK, Eric Todd, Jay, James Lattimore, James Lindsay, Jim Pyre, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L, Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linz Jackson K, Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Oli Andre Olar, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Veroche K., Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D., Amber Hall, and Craig Sagastumi. I thank all of you for the incredible support. We're back on Where Did the Road Go? And we're reading stories from Mysteries of the Unexplained, a Reader's Digest book that came out in 1982. And uh, I have with me Christopher Ernst, Octavian, hello, Taylor, and Taylor's hello. co-host Ian. Yep, that's what we just met. Yes, yeah. My name is Ian. Ian, yeah. Ian Burton. Okay, we literally brought you in in the middle of the show. Wait, did you say Taylor's you co-host I, or Octavians? I I meant to say Octavians. I might have said okay. Taylor's. No, word, words are hard. Things get mixed up. I write. You tw- can be my co-host, Ian. I'm the, I'm the co-host for, I appreciate it. I, I'm like the co-host for hire. I just, I'm in the newspaper, I guess. Let's <laughs> show up. <laughs> no, yeah. So yeah, I was, thanks for inviting me on so late. I'm sitting here like, oh man. Oh, all right. I can get into this. I kind of, I know what they're talking about. Now. <laughs> and, and, and I'm, I'm not great with names and I, I, apparently I'm not great with months. My brain just randomly throws months out. Like I'll mean November and that'll be, I'll say August. And it's like, okay, sure. They're the same thing. (laughs) Thanks. I put, I've been putting 2020 on things lately. So (laughs) apparently I've gone back in time. I never love you too. We're just, we're just kind of holding there. You're like, all right, all right, let's just be 2020 and go from there. Everybody in the world agrees on it. Uh, In a lecture given at the University of Cambridge in 1818, Dr. Edward D. Clark, a geologist, described some unusual newts he had found in a chalk quarry. He had been looking for fossils, he said, 
and was digging in the quarry at a depth of 270 feet when he came upon a number of fossilized sea urchins and newts. Three of the newts were very well preserved, and Dr. Clark carefully dug them out of the rock and placed them on a sheet of paper in the sun. To his considerable surprise, the newts began to move. Within a short time, two of the animals were dead, but the third seemed so lively that Dr. Clark placed it in a pond. Its response was to promptly escape from him and disappear. According to Dr. Clark, the rejuvenated newts were unlike any of the living lo- any of those living locally at the time and belonged to an extinct species previously unknown to science. Wow. So yeah, that's apparently newts can do it too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 uh wonder if it is sort of like an amphibian lizard thing. It would be interesting to hear about that from somebody who actually knew about it from a zoological standpoint. And another correlation to witchcraft because of newts yeah. and toads. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, uh, that's true. And there's a and there's yeah. a lot of uh, in in Native American, um, you know, tribal. I want to say legend, but in in practices, um, they also feature very prominently. Huh. Yeah. Newts, frogs specifically, toads and frogs. And okay. it's, like I'm I'm not going to be at liberty to you know talk about those practices, but you know from what I understand and from what people who are far more in the know. Uh, would say like there are you know there are certain medicines dedicated to certain uh, animals and, and okay. toads and yep. frogs are known to be one of the most powerful as I yep. understand it. I think I, I know less about newts, but I believe you know newts and salamanders are also you know they have their own thing. But mm-hmm. so yeah, that's interesting that correlation between you know witchcraft and then you know, just these animals themselves are fascinating. Like I wonder if there's any you know modern scientific studies that have you know, continued, you know, these older stories. Yeah. Like, I wonder if there's any newer stories. I mean, this book's from 82. I wonder if there's anything that's happened recently where this has happened. Or was this just something that happened, you know, in, in the couple uh, hundred years ago? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like we should, uh, one of us can go look into it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing some Googling. We'll see what we find. Chris, do you want to read about the last of the pterodactyls? Yes, I can certainly do that. The last of the pterodactyls, flying reptiles with leathery wings and long toothy beaks, died about 100 million years ago, according to established scientific opinion of 1982. Uh, In the experience of a number of startled French workmen, the last one died in the winter of 1856 in a partially completed railway tunnel between the St. Désir and Nancy lines. In the half-light of the tunnel, something monstrous stumbled toward them out of a great boulder of Jurassic limestone they had just split open. It fluttered its wings, croaked, and died at their feet. The creature, whose wingspan was 10 feet 7 inches, had four legs joined by a membrane like a bat. What should have been feet were long talons, and the mouth was arrayed with sharp teeth. The skin was like black leather, thick and oily. At the nearby town of Gray, the creature was immediately identified by a local student of paleontology as a pterodactyl. The rock stratum in which it had been found was consistent with the period when pterodactyls lived, and the limestone boulder that had imprisoned the winged reptile for millions of years was found to contain a cavity in the form of an exact mold of the creature's body. And this is from the Illustrated London News, 1856. So where is that pterodactyl now? Well, it's been 150 years, so 170 yeah, years to be like fair. Thrown it in some formaldehyde or something. 
It's it's haunting the town of Silent Hill. I bet yeah, yeah right. It's haunting the town of Silent. I bet some rich, some rich dudes got it. Yeah, you're probably not wrong. Yeah, or somebody misplaced it or tried to give it to the Smithsonian. I mean, I actually think a lot of so I don't know if any of you know uh, or have just you know in casual perusing of the news have seen any of the stuff about you know the private art you know private international art theft and you know how beyond just museums having all of this stolen uh indigenous art a lot of it is in private collections um and i i really think that a lot of this stuff you know beyond whatever smithsonian cover-ups or things like that you know there it's like the meta materials you know it's snatched up by the rich folks so heather lynn who's an archaeologist uh, was investigating a lot of theft and such, especially during the um, when we invaded Iraq. Yeah. And what was happening is these very rich people were paying different uh, groups to yeah. go in and steal stuff from the museums for them. She wrote a book about it, which the publisher refused to uh, oh. publish because of the people she was uh, basically naming in the book. Yep. So she, she ended up having to turn the book into a work of fiction. Uh, and the actual book never got released because the, the publisher figured he'd get, you know, sued out of existence. You don't go after rich yeah. people like that. No. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's apparently a huge ring of, of these, these rich, you know, ultra rich people in the world who will yeah. literally do whatever they can to get their hands on these artifacts that yeah. nobody else will ever see again. And while I absolutely don't believe that like, you know, Beyonce is trying to, uh, encode Illuminati stuff into Super Bowl uh, performances. <laughs> there are some rich people and, you know, rich people not in the public eye that I'm sure have some very distinct and deep occult interests because you know, I do and I'm just a stupid schmuck, you know? Um, so I can imagine, I mean, imagine if you had as much money as you could possibly ever, you know, want and power and you were interested in the occult. What are you going to do? Be sure, like yeah. the uh, the PGM, which is obviously a cornerstone of ceremonial magic, that was that belonged to some rich guy in Germany. And luckily, he was he you know he sold it to a bunch of museums and things like that. And that's why we have it. But I mean, who knows how many grimoires and and things like that are owned by? Oh, completely. Yeah, and they'll never let it up. They'll never give it up. Yep. The- it's kind of sad, but it's also I don't know. Like, I guess that's the way of things. <laughs> It's you know, always been the way of things. Absolutely. Some some Martin Shkreli buys copies the, of it for yeah, it's actually that's it. Yes, yep. it's Pharma Bros. Yeah, it's this is the, uh, the modern equivalent is uh uh the Wu Tang album, which yep. you know ho- hopefully I hope in a thousand years people look on as a grimoire. <laughs> <laughs> so I like it. what was I just gonna say about this? I've I've lost it. I apologize. About the Wu Tang Clan album. No, before the Wu Tang. That's what distracted me, and then I forgot. <laughs> Sorry, we don't need to wait. <laughs> <laughs> it was something. It was something about the the theft of artifacts. And so, oh no, it was the oh, yeah, uh, when you when you said Beyonce putting stuff, you know, messages from the Illuminati. I think some of these these pop stars and stuff are just fascinated with this stuff and think it's cool. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, they put, they, in, and they integrate that into some of their music, or maybe the record company yeah. says, you know, it'd be cool. It'll get people talking. If you put this in your music or whatever, you know, where there's not really anything there, it's just yeah. to get 
you know, like I said, to be cool or get people talking or whatever. And it works. That was the whole thing about Drake and the owl. He has, you know, his symbol is an owl. And that I guess is something to do with the Illuminati. And so a lot of people were freaking out thinking that that was a secret code or something. <laughs> well, there's the big owl up at the place where all the rich people meet. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? Moloch? Yeah. 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 Uh, Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove. That's it. Yeah. Good Which is, oh, if yeah, you yeah. really, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, uh, yeah, I, I mean, at least in my opinion, just because uh, uh, it's similar to some sort of things, you know, that I've seen in the Northeast here amongst like the, the old rich, but it started out as essentially a theater camp. It was like, we're all going to go out, get drunk in the woods. A lot of them were theater performers. Like that was like how Bohemian Grove started and they would do, you know, like productions and things like that. And it was, uh, you know, all rich people so it was very much like skull and bones in that sense but uh it's just funny how the 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 theater you know and there is obviously a sort of fine gray line between theater and actual cult workings um but uh at least it's the the origins of bohemian grove were so much more pedestrian like drunk frat boy than anybody thinks (laughs) that kind of reminds me of the uh was it cern or where was it there was some some somewhere over in europe that they had basically like um opened up some sort of a um a new branch of their facility or something Mm. and they they put on this really elaborate like play for lack of a better word where they had you know people suspended in ropes people dressed as construction workers that were like doing some synchronized dancing and like people with these huge wings you guys know what i'm talking about yeah yeah i mean there are a couple of things i can think of one was the i think the opening of yeah one of the new parts of cern i think i think that's what it was and then one another one might have been the opening of like a new tunnel or something like that uh i've been maybe thinking of a different event anyway i think i know what you're talking about yeah okay yeah, I mean, you're right. There is a very fine line between, you know, an actual occult working and, you know, theater, because in, in a lot of ways, they're sort of part of the same thing. Right. Yeah. But I think that it's also there's like a line I, I see sometimes, you know, there are some synchromistic blogs that think like the masked singer has a uh, occult underpinning in the costume design and i i guarantee you you know having worked in the entertainment industry for a, a while that's some it's just like they're searching for edgy design that's all it is yeah you know yeah there might be a grander uh i don't know there might be a grander like collective con- unconscious conspiracy where there are unseen forces that are making people want to use designs but that's that's a whole other ball game i don't want to get you know i have no idea about complete speculation but in, yeah in terms of the actual people on the ground who are making these things they're just they're hipsters that are trying their best to impress their boss so they're trying to think of the edgiest thing to do yeah <laughs> yep all right the pacific island of new caledonia is approximately a thousand miles southwest of new guinea and about 750 miles from the east coast of australia about 40 miles from its southern tip is the isle of pines on this small island are some 400 curious, cumuli anthill-shaped mounds of sand and gravel, 8 to 9 feet high, and some 300 feet in diameter. Similar mounds are found in smaller numbers in the Paita district of New Caledonia, of southern New Caledonia, 
On the Isle of Pines, the sand has a high iron oxide content. Near Paeta, it is rich in silica. In both cases, the mounds are virtually bare of vegetation. In the early 1960s, four of the tumuli were excavated um, by the Museum of the New, Cal- New Caledonia, uh, Museum of New Caledonia at Numisi, Numia? Numia, the island's capital. The mounds are strange in their own right, but what Chevalier found in them was even stranger. At the center of the three mounds, he discovered an upright cement pillar, and in a fourth, two such pillars side by side. No bones, charcoal, or any other remains were found. The pillars, or cylinders, which range from 40 to 75 inches in diameter and 40 to 100 inches in height, are composed of a limestone mortar compound containing bits of shell. These have been dated by radiocarbon process between 5120 B.C. and 10,950 B.C. The use of lime mortar compounds is almost unheard of prior to the Classical period. A few hundred years B.C., as far as is currently known, the first human arrived in New Caledonia from Indonesia around 2000 B.C. The outer surface of the cylinders is speckled with fragments of silica and iron gravel that seems to have been set in the mortar as it hardened. Chevalier's guess is that they were formed by pouring mortar into narrow pits dug into the top of the mounds and allowing it to harden in place. Why anyone would do such a thing, there appears to be no natural explanation for the pillars, is entirely mysterious, and given the apparent age of the cylinders and the fact that there are no signs of life, human or otherwise, associated with them, so is the nature of those who made them. Oh, it's easy. They were catching frogs. (laughs) Just pouring their limestone mortar and... Yeah, crack those open. I bet you find a bunch of frogs. Huh. Toads. Toads, yeah. Toads, frogs, newts, whatever. I mean, that's that's one I'm not, I don't even remember reading in this book. That's that's really fascinating. Yeah, that really is. I mean, the yeah, again, it's that whole idea of when people are surprised by finding, I mean, I guess rightfully so, surprised by finding technology that seems, you know, out of place for the time, but. Who knows? Who knows what those could have been for? But the the fact that there is technology that seems to be more advanced earlier and earlier and earlier is something we keep on seeing again and again and again. And, you know, at this point, I think we should hopefully start to take it as, you know, that there isn't this completely linear line of technological advancement. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But that's again, that's that's the Darwinian idea that things can only improve. Right, right. We right. don't accept that, you know, there were past eras that may have been more advanced in different ways than us. Right. Um, or, we, God forbid, lateral moves. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and, and you look at, like, the, the um, oh, what's the, the, I know the name of it, the Antikythera device. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like, oh, we, we, we've been able to find markings that say where it was made, blah, blah, blah. We've been able to figure out what it does. It's like, yes, but this level of technology shouldn't have existed by our by what we believe in back right. then and that clearly wasn't the first one yeah it's the only one we found and that was just by luck so what else was there in that time period that we did not find yeah i feel like recently and i could be completely wrong about this that there was more proof sort of uh not uncovered but uh more sort of like research and testing done and that the uh, the blocks at Pumapunku and Tiwatiwakan, the ones that fit together so tightly, yeah. uh, that it's it's pr- that they're you know 
They're pretty sure that it's some sort of it, uh, like advanced poured concrete of some kind, and that's how they were able to do it. Um, yeah, and that's I know one, that one there's the some speculation. Yeah. What's that? That is one yeah. of the theories out there. Yeah, and I, but I feel like there was something I read recently, and I could be wrong. That that is that there's more proof to that, and you know that would be a simple but understandable solution for a lot of these anomalies that we see. And I'm not saying that's it. But if if we and if, you know, uh, in general, sort of the scientific, you know, the conservative scientific community were to accept that, you know, there could be something that was great that was done thousands and thousands of years ago that we haven't thought of yet. But somebody else did. But our particular phase and wave of civilization hasn't, you know, which could be a really great concrete better than the one we're using. What is that? Uh, it's, uh, um, uh, the, it's called like Greek, is it called Greek plaster or what's the name for it? I don't know. Um, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh vaguely. Yeah. And it's because there's a particular, it's like this really strong concrete that I think comes from either Gro Greek or Ro Groke or Riemann. Oh, I'm tired. <laughs> Groke oh, or Riemann times. <laughs> Greek or Roman times that is exceptionally strong because of like, there's just some extra mineral that they put in there that they had around at the time that, you know, makes it really strong. Well, look at Greek fire. We don't even know what that was. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what, what I'm is, What is that? I don't think I've heard that. So Greek fire Greek was, fire. they would use it to uh, throw at ships. And if I remember right, it wouldn't go out with contact with water. Oh, right. Like, and it uh, was like green wasn't so, it supposed to be like green that. or something? Yeah. That's that, that, you know, here I go bringing RPGs into it, but that sounds like uh, Alchemist's fire in like D&D. Right. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Roman concrete is what it's called. And it's because of the incorporation of pozzolanic ash, which prevents cracks from spreading. Anyway, huh. you know. Interesting. Yeah. And then the sound tech that existed back then, both, uh, well, I know Andrew Collins wrote a book that talks right. a lot about the sound technology you find in some of these ancient sites. I mean, they clearly knew more about how sound worked than they knew stuff that we're only now starting to figure out, you know, whether you're looking at the yeah. pyramids, whether you're looking at like the ball arenas in South in, in like Mexico, or you're looking at like, um, what is it? Not Crete. Uh, they're the underground chambers. What's the other small island around Crete? Mycenaeus? No. Uh, um, no. Um, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Malta. Yes. Malta, yeah. You know, Malta has the hypogeum, which, you know, like you could speak in yep. one part of it and it your voice comes out completely differently in another part of it. I mean, that takes advanced sound design. Interesting. So, I mean, that stuff is, I mean, that type of technology. And I mean, we're learning now that you can use sound to levitate and move things. And you have stories of that going back to Tibetan monks being able to do that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yep. We're yeah. just, we're just really arrogant in, in thinking that we know everything and everyone before us was not as smart. Yep. You know, you look at the pyramid and you'll get people saying, well, you know, we could build that. I mean, maybe, but not without, we would have to design machines to lift those blocks. I feel like the, that's the sort of the, uh, yeah, that's sort of what's going on right now is us saying, you know, we could do that, but is anybody doing anything that right. like that cool? Not really. Well, there is, has anybody seen, and I don't know if this is actually going to happen, of course, obviously. But uh, the plans, and I, it's in one of the, might be Qatar, but it's essentially this like several mile long, it looks like uh, the monolith 
from uh, 2001, but it's made out of mirrors. Yeah, I just saw that. Yeah, it's called The Line, uh, I think, or something like that. And it's this futuristic, like, city. It's the self-contained city in the middle of the desert. Yeah, look it up. Uh, I am sure if you, you know, search some combination of that, uh, you'll find it. Uh, But it's pretty crazy, the renderings of it. It looks like something out of, you know... Uh, 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 Den- Dennis Villeneuve sci-fi film. Huh. Saudi Arabia? Yeah, it might be Saudi Arabia. $500 billion Neom project. There you go. 120 kilometer long skyscraper called the Mirror Line. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, pretty crazy looking. Huh. But you know, like that's one thing. But when you look at the, uh, the pyramid and you think about the fact that they didn't have machines like we had. Right. They had a, had a way of maneuvering these stones, and they did it all over the world. And I always love when you see a skeptic go, well, we built one that's, you know, 15 feet high right here. We could show you how they did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's 15 feet high, buddy. <laughs> it's like, great. You yeah, replic- just scale it up. You, yeah, exactly. Just scale it up. Yeah, you just need bigger boats. <laughs> there, there was a special, I remember writing a blog entry about this back when I saw it. Uh, talking about the 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 heads, the um, how I want to say Malta, the, the the big heads down in South America, uh, Easter Island. No, 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 no. They you look like, like the Toltec heads. It's not Toltec. It's uh, Toltec? I think it's the earliest recognized culture in South America. They look. Oh, the um. They, uh, yeah, yeah, see, they I look, know what you're yeah. talking about. They I look African. Yep, yep, yeah, they do. Right. Uh, of yep. course. You know, current archaeology will say they can't be African because how would African people have gotten to South America? Um, Some listeners screaming. The Olmec heads. Yes, there you go. Olmec. So those heads, so there was this whole special about how they made the Olmec heads. And they know where they they quarried them and they moved them a really long distance from the quarry to where some of these heads were found. And they, you know, the, the heads can be like 20, 30 tons, if I'm not mistaken. So they got one that was like half a ton, and they had a hell of a time moving it, but they managed to get it to the shore with a lot of effort, put it on a gigantic you know, barge that they had to make from the materials they thought those people would have access to, and the thing was enormous to be able to carry that much weight, and then they got it down the river and you know, dragged it to where they wanted it to be, and they're like, see, that's how they did it, and I'm like, cool, now try one with the same weight. Yeah, right. Because they're just like, well, you just need a bigger barge. It's like, okay, the river's only so wide. Yeah. At a certain point, that water displacement thing isn't going to work because they're too heavy. But they don't, you know, that's, it's just all about disproving that there's anything weird here and proving that, you know, we could do it if we wanted. Right. Yeah. It's a weird, a weird attitude to have about that kind of stuff. Like I get it, you know, wanting to know definitively this is, you know, this is how you could do it or this is how it was done. But at the end of the day, like we we don't know definitively, and just because we can come up with an answer doesn't mean that it's the answer necessarily. Yeah, and that's a very important distinction that uh, people will come up with a way you can do something, and it's like, but that doesn't prove that's how it was done. You've proved it's possible to do it that way. Yeah. And sometimes we may never be able to prove how it was done. I mean, unless we found documentation or something like that. And it's it's so weird that we don't have any documentation from the largest structures. Yeah. I'm, it is it is a little weird, but they're also pretty old though. True, true. But we have old documentation. 
Uh, and the, the thing is, they're probably a lot older than the culture that that took over from them. Right. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to tell. Yeah. If you, if you look at like Machu Picchu, you know, it's it's um, the Incas are generally credited with it, but the Incas said we didn't build that. Right. You know? A lot of people did that. Yeah. It's like That's, that, that yeah. was old when we got here. You know. Yeah. It's amazing to me when like a, a culture claims something like that, and then other people who have nothing to do with that culture are like, "Well, they must be wrong." Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, they they <laughs> built it. They well, just they, don't remember. God. Isn't the uh, yeah, right. The thing about like the, the thing about what? Right, yeah. Well, the thing about Atlantis was that uh, God. Now I'm completely forgetting who originally came, like who stated the existence of Atlantis. Plato was Plato. talking about it. Yeah, and, and so, uh, but it was I, also he, yeah him talking from. about somebody he had heard it from. And then the that guy said that uh, that civilization was like thousands of years older than him, and that guy was thousands of years older than Plato. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Was, Plato. That, that was a big case of like someone's grandmother's cousin. Right. You know, you know, brothers, aunt, half removed in Egypt, and and you know, said by like a traveling storyteller that heard it from them. Well, it that, was, I believe it was. was I believe it was Solon. It was. Yes. It was uh, uh, Plato recounting Solon what Solon had heard in Egypt from the priests of Egypt, in, uh, who, if, who was recounting a story from like his grandfather. Right. Yes. Exactly. However, yeah. the data actually matches up with what we know today, and that's what makes it really interesting. On uh, right. Cosmographia, the podcast that Randall Carlson and the Snake Brothers do. They do like an eight-part teardown of the Atlantis data. Yep. yep. And it's well worth listening to if that interests you, if you're interested Definitely. in Atlantis. But one of the thing, key things that, that uh, Randall points out is that Plato never said it was a continent. You constantly mm -hmm. hear, well, there's no continent of Atlantis. No, Plato said it was an island. Yep. It got changed to a continent uh, when, when uh, Churchill started writing about it in the late 1800s. Mm. Well, so it, it's like the entire beginning of Cosmographia. It's like, yeah, like, yeah. like you said, like eight or nine episodes. But that is super solid and definitely worth listening to. And Speaking of all that, the uh, Randall Carlson and uh, Graham Hancock's new show comes out tonight, I think. Or oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, not not when people when people are hearing this, it'll already oh, yeah. be out. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Oh, right, it's called yeah. Ancient Apocalypse. Oh, interesting. And we're out of time. So, real quick, uh, where can people find you, Octavian and Ian? Uh, StrangeDominionsPodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we all, yeah, that's everywhere. And our email address, so StrangeDominionsPodcast.gmail.com. Taylor? Uh, hiding under a rock. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter sometimes. Uh, otherwise, uh, Green Line Podcast and uh, Sigil Arcanum Tarot. Okay. Chris? Uh, BrightRectangle.com. Uh, and you can find movies on Troma and on Prime. Excellent. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks. There is, of course, a Patreon segment along with this show. Patreons will be getting that during the week. And if you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month. And you get extra content all month long. And it helps us out greatly. It also helps us out if you rate us highly on whatever you're listening to us on and share us with people you think might be interested. I'm going to take you out with some Eliza Rickman. This is a song called Black Rose. Comes off her 2012 record, Oh, You Sinners. And I'll see you next time.
have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. <laughs>